Good morning, Oaks Church. Can y'all hear me okay? Wonderful. Okay. Well, my name is Hunter. I have the privilege of being one of the lay pastors here, and it is my absolute joy to be here sharing God's word with you today. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, go ahead and flip open to Romans 15. Um, As a side note, I just want to say our creative arts team is absolutely crushing it with these memory verse cards. So Molly, great job on this one. Y'all are just killing it on these, so... Okay, so go ahead and flip open, uh, find Romans 15. If it's your first time or you're new to the Bible, that's right after Acts and, and right before the letters to the Corinthians. Um, so while you're flipping there, let's, let's go ahead and start with a word of prayer. Uh, Father, uh, your word is so good. We, we know your word is good, God. Help us to just love your word so much. Help us to love your son so much. God, you have so much to teach us in your scriptures. Lord, I pray you would uh, just make our hearts soften to to receive what you would tell us to receive, what you would call us to, God, to be a gospel people. So God, soften us today, convict us, drive us, show us just how glorious it is to be in on this gospel work. And so God, I pray you help us to fulfill your gospel call even here in Cincinnati. So Lord, help me even to speak about this passage and help all of us to love you more, I pray. Amen. Okay, so... You found Romans 15. Uh, We actually started uh, this Roman series in 2021, the fall of 2021. So this is now the third fall that we're going through Romans. Some of you have been with us since the start of that. Some of you have joined us along the way. And some of you, this might even be your first time. You didn't even know we were going through Romans. But I think most Christians have a soft spot in their heart for this book. Perhaps it was the first book that you were discipled through. Perhaps it was the book that, through which you came to faith in Christ, that you first trusted in him. I, I think all of us have a soft spot for this letter. But that's just the point. Most of us, I think, often forget that this was originally written as a letter. This was not Paul's doctrinal treatise that he wanted to have on every shelf in every Christian home. He didn't write this as a systematic overview just for that purpose. This was a personal letter. Romans, can you imagine? Longer than any letter I've ever written for sure. But this is a personal letter. And it's really easy to forget that, especially in the innermost chapters when you're kind of down, down in the trenches and in the middle chapters, struggling through sin and talking about what it means to have salvation in Christ. But it becomes very obvious here at the end. You see, Paul saves the full disclosure of his motives here until chapter 15. Chapter 15 and chapter 16, Paul gets very personal. He really opens up. He really discloses the full intentions and motives of his heart. A fun story to tell you. The first time when I asked my wife out on our first date, I was not particularly clear with my intentions. So I met my wife. Uh, We were students in a student ministry. She was relatively new, but we had had a number of really great conversations. We uh, had actually sat beside each other in several prayer meetings. We had even had an impromptu lunch together. And so I had seen enough to know I had to, I had to make my move. I was going to miss out. Yeah, if you know Anna, you know that's true. And so I made my move, and I asked her out to hot chocolate. She does not drink coffee. She, she likes hot chocolate. So I asked her out. She said yes. And we went to this really popular bagel shop, had a wonderful date. Um, it was great. We talked about all sorts of things. It was a wonderful date, except for one thing. Anna did not know it was a date. <laughs> I knew it was a date. The Lord knew it was a date. (laughs) Anna did not know that she was on a date. You see, our student ministry really emphasized, 
you know, building up relationships with folks, being welcoming to newer faces. And I had actually been one of the first people to welcome her when she came out to our student ministry. And so she thought I was just really embodying the values of our student ministry. And, but thankfully it all worked out and now we're married, so that's wonderful. I was not particularly clear in my motives from the beginning. I, I had, uh, in the blunder of just getting, you know, asking her out on a date and getting to that hot chocolate, I had completely forgot to explain my motives. So guys, let that be a lesson to you. Sometimes it's good to put your, you know, lead with your intentions. But in other circumstances, it's actually right to hold your cards a little bit closer to your chest. In other circumstances, it's right to wait. And one of those such circumstances we find here in Romans 15. You see, Paul led in Romans 1 in his introduction, talking about how he wanted to come to this church in Rome. But here in 15, he makes it a little bit more obvious why he needs to come. He fully discloses the purpose for wanting to visit. And this is a strategic move. So uh, he has a specific motive to share. And as T.L. mentioned last week, it's a missionary motive. It's a motivation for missions to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. But he's held that until now. And you see this, this message, this chapter that Paul wrote to Rome, Romans 15, with a missionary motive, the whole reason behind the letter to Rome has implications for us today too, because God's mission is not yet complete. So with that, find Romans 15. We're going to begin reading in verse 14. Romans 15, verse 14. Paul says, I myself am satisfied with you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. But on some points, I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder. Because of the grace given to me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. To bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see. And those who have never heard will understand. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for so many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing, as I go to Spain, and to be helped on my journey there by you, once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought to be of service to them in material blessings. When, therefore, I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. 
I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by the Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Now, that's a long passage. That's a very long passage. And there's a lot to digest here. There's a lot to cover. And so, I'm just going to tell you now, buckle up. This might be a, on the longer side. But we'll try and keep it timely. This is a long passage. But right here, we see Paul really start to show his full colors, reveal all of those cards, put it all out on the table. And this has a word to us as well. So, for those of you that like to take notes, this is the main takeaway I want you to hear to see, to understand, to feel when you read this passage, that those who have been filled by the gospel should fulfill the gospel. Those who have been filled by the gospel of God, those who have been filled up by the gospel should fulfill, fully fulfill, fulfill the ministry of the gospel. Now, if you're a Christian, that's you. You've been filled by the gospel, and so you should fulfill the gospel. Now, before we really dive into this text, I think it's worth taking just a few moments to consider some contextual matters. You know, some of you have joined us recently. Some of you have been with us a long time. So either you've forgotten some of the early things that we've talked about or you've just never heard them. But I think it's helpful to just build some context briefly. So first, where is Paul in his life? I don't know about you. I often kind of just compact all of Paul's ministry into one thought. It's really difficult to think about a lifetime of his service and, and think about what's going on at different places. Well, where's Paul in life? He's on his third missionary journey. That's where it's believed he is at this point. Uh, you can find this in Acts 18 to 21. Um, Paul's on his third missionary journey. So he's already gone out twice into you know, modern-day Turkey, modern-day Greece, Eastern Europe, and he's planted churches. And so he's come back, he's gone out and done it again, and now this is his third trip, and he's going out to strengthen the disciples, to check on the folks that he's, he's seen and he's ministered to, these churches that he's planted. He's going out to be of service to the disciples and check on them. Now this is about 20 years after his conversion, set in the mid-50s. And actually, if you have a Bible, all the way in the back of the Bible, you might have some Bible maps. If you flip all the way back there, you might find a map that talks about Paul's missionary journeys. And so there's a third missionary journey. If you have a Bible from Crossway, you definitely have a Bible map in the back. I would encourage you to look at that, even as we're going through this text. Look where Paul's going. Look where he's been. See how far apart some of these places are. But somewhere on this journey, Paul had it come to mind, had it set in his heart, had it set in his spirit to visit Rome. Now, if there's a place in Acts that you can pinpoint this, it's probably Acts 19.20. It says at that point that he was resolved in his spirit to visit Macedonia and Achaia and go to Rome. So Acts 19.21, I think, is a good point where we can see the desire blossom in Paul to go to Rome and to write this letter. And, and so he writes a letter, a big letter, a really big letter. And the major theme of this whole letter, this whole book, is the gospel. 
What is the gospel? The gospel is the power of God for salvation to all who believe, both Jew and Gentile. Paul writes this massive letter. He talks about the holy wrath of God against sin. He talks about the pervasiveness of sin in humanity. He talks about the love of God for sinners in Christ. He talks about the struggle we have as Christians against sin and the hope that we have in God to fulfill his promises. He talks about the nature of the relationship between Gentiles and Jews and what all of the different covenants, how they all work together. He talks about the sovereignty of God and the trust that we can have in our great God who saved us. He talks about all of these things in this letter. It's a big letter. And so now, put yourself in the original hearer's positions. Imagine if I stood up here and read chapters 1 through 14 of Romans. You'd be here for a while. You just heard all that. You heard these deep, deep you know, items, these deep theology, all of these heavy, weighty matters. And then Paul writes this in 15, verse 14. I myself am satisfied with you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness and filled with all knowledge. He says, you guys are a healthy bunch of Christians. I'm really happy with you. You're doing all right. You're like, what? That should generate two questions in your mind. When he says, I, I, he just wrote all of this you know, heavy stuff, and then he says, you guys, you already know all this. You're already fine on all of this. That should generate two questions. A, why does, how can Paul say that? He's never actually been to Rome. He has never stepped foot in Rome. And secondly, why did he have to write all of this letter then up to this point? Well, the first one, I think we can look at the bookends of Romans. In the first chapter, he says, hey, church at Rome, your faith is being proclaimed in all the world. The whole world knows about what's going on there in Rome. And then he says in chapter 16, you'll see this next week, your obedience is known to all. He says, church at Rome, you have a legacy, you have a reputation for faithfulness and obedience to Christ that goes far outside the walls of Rome. So he can say that, but also in Romans 16, you see he knows a lot of people. Romans 16 is one of the longest lists at the end of a letter in the Bible. He knows so many people, people he's rubbed shoulders with on, on his journeys and people that he's ministered in different cities with. So even if Paul has never stepped foot in Rome, he knows a lot about this church. He knows a lot of people there. And so he can say, I am satisfied with you, my brothers, that you have been filled by the gospel. You are full of goodness, filled with the knowledge of Christ, able to instruct one another in the ways of Jesus. Well, that leads to a second question. Why does he need to write all of these 14 chapters then? Well, to remind them. So this is actually going to lead to our first point. We said, there are uh, those who have been filled by the gospel ought to fulfill the gospel. How do we fulfill the gospel? He's writing them, you have been filled. This is what you're filled with. Now fulfill the gospel. And he's, we're going to see four ways that he really emphasizes how we can fulfill the gospel. And the first one is to cherish the gospel. How, how do we fulfill God's mission? How do we fulfill the gospel? By cherishing the gospel. Okay. He says in verse 15, but on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder. Now, if there's a, a, a gently said, you know, a more gentle statement in, in all of the history of the world, Romans, a few boldly said points, uh, is a, a big understatement, it feels. But the really key word here is he's writing to remind them. 
Paul says, I have written by way of reminder because of the grace given to me by God. He's saying fulfill the gospel by cherishing the gospel. He said, I've written strongly on these points. I want to remind you. Why does he need to remind them? What is he reminding them of? The gospel. The gospel that is for the salvation of all who hear it. He wants to remind them of gospel truth and gospel priority. There is one gospel for all who believe. And all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and need this gospel. And are justified by Christ through the redemption that is in his blood. It's a free gift of God because otherwise the wages of sin is death. And so all who call on the Lord will be saved. Everyone who believes in their heart that he was raised from the dead and confesses with their mouth that he is Lord. He said, this is the gospel I want you to remember. Be reminded of this. Cherish this. You see, division was threatening the church in Rome. This Jew-Gentile back and forth, it was threatening them. And also, a couple points along the way, we seem to get the indication that Paul's own ministry There's some questions about it. Some people have some misconceptions about what he's doing and what his goals are. And that's not uncommon. We see that even in the book of Acts. And so what Paul's doing, he's opening up, you know, he's opening up the hood on his own heart, showing them what he's all about, showing them the gospel he believes that he's striving for, the gospel that defines his ministry, and he's kind of putting a finger right on the weak points in their own congregation in Rome. He's saying, don't let those things that are causing you trouble replace the one thing that's holding you all together. Don't let these matters that are of division separate you from one another and let you forget that there's one gospel, one divine gospel that pulls all of you together under the banner of Jesus Christ. He says, remember the gospel. You're a healthy church. Don't let these things let you forget that. That was a pertinent reminder to us too. Terry Lee said as much last week, I could say it this week, we can say it every single week and we would never get tired of it. We need to remember the gospel. We need to cherish the gospel. The gospel is not like a vaccine that you get once and are set for life. It's like food. It is daily bread. You need three square meals of gospel every day. You need the gospel over and over and over again to remember it. We don't need mercy just once in our life. We need new mercies every single morning. We don't just need the Spirit to get across the line of salvation. If we are going to walk and not grow weary, run and not grow faint, we need the gospel. We need it every single day. Don't you ever take the gospel for granted, lest you you find you've forgotten it, lest you find you never had it to begin with. Don't you ever take the gospel for granted. The gospel is not just the ABCs of Christianity. The gospel is not just the building blocks and the basics. It is everything. It pervades everything. The gospel is everything in our faith. The Romans needed to be reminded of this. You and I need to be reminded of this. We need to be reminded to cherish the gospel. Paul wasn't beyond this himself. You look in verse 15. He says, I've written to remind you about this because of the grace given to me. Paul knows the gospel. He remembers the fury, the zeal with which he used to just terrorize Christians, with which he used to tear down churches. But the grace of God came to him. The gospel came to Paul. And now those same churches, those same Christians that he used to terrorize, he's now building up. He's planting new churches. He's sowing seeds of the gospel every place that he goes. He knows it's not him. He's cherishing this gospel. The gospel is Paul's cherished possession. He says in another letter to another church, I count absolutely everything as loss 
for the sake of knowing Christ, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Cherish the gospel. Cherish the gospel. Don't forget the gospel that saved you. And now, Paul says, by the grace given to me, by this grace that God has shown me, he says, to be a minister of Christ Jesus. You see, this grace shown to Paul comes with a calling. It, call, it comes with an invitation to share in a mission. And that brings us to our second point. How do we fulfill the gospel? Well, we start by cherishing the gospel. Well, from there, what do we do? Well, to fulfill the gospel, we share in God's mission. How do we fulfill the gospel? By sharing in God's mission. By passionately joining in God. Joining with God in his mission. See, Paul received the gospel, and it came with a calling. It came with a call to action. Back in Acts 26, verse 1 through 7, Paul is standing before King Agrippa in chains, and he's relaying to King Agrippa how Jesus revealed himself to him. He's talking about this incident we call the road, on the road to Damascus, Paul's conversion. And he's telling King Agrippa, Jesus told me this. He says, Paul, I am sending you to the Gentiles to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by me. God's grace comes with a purpose. God's gospel demands a response. It demands action. It demands movement. It demands mission. God's gospel is not does not come just to, so we can rest in it. It's so that we can rest in it and do something with it. And Paul was given a unique calling. Now he says here, I became a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. Now Paul's being very modest here. As if there's such thing as just a minister. He's not just a minister. He's a, an apostle. He's been given a unique office. Given, tasked with laying the foundation of the whole church by Jesus. He has every right to ask things, to write letters, to demand things of churches. He's an apostle. But here he says, I was called to be a minister of the grace, uh, of, of, a minister of Christ Jesus because of the grace given to me. So, he cares about this church. This is in Rome. This is a Gentile center. We said, you know, we, we've talked about before that a lot of the Jews were expelled from Rome, and so then it became a primarily Gentile church, and now the Jews are coming back. There's a heavy Gentile presence. They're not in Judea. They're not in Palestine. They're in Italy, in Rome. This is a Gentile haven. And so Paul cares about what's happening in this church. He cares about what's going on in this area. He cares about the Gentiles. He has an apostolic you know, love for this church. He cares about their health, and he cares about the reputation of his own ministry there because he's been appointed by God to be a minister to the Gentiles. And so he likens this service to the priestly role in the tabernacle. Look down in uh, verse 16. The priestly service of the gospel. You know, that's, that's what he's calling his, his ministry. So that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. You hear a lot of language there of his original call on the road to Damascus. This is what Christ has called me to do. I'm going to fulfill it. He likens it to, to this priestly role in the tabernacle, but instead of bringing you know, meat or grain or some other offering, he's bringing people. He's bringing people. 
He, you know, he's looking at people who need saving and bringing a savior to them and then bringing them back to God as an offering, sanctified in the Holy Spirit. You know, Paul, you know, we saw this in the uh, first half of last week, uh, that this is exactly what God's mission has always been. God has always been in the mission of saving people and getting glory for himself among the nations. God's eternal plan has always been to save people from every nation and to send them into the world to make himself known. And that's exactly what Paul is getting on board with here. This is a Trinitarian drama being revealed. The gospel is going out. And Paul says, I'm bringing people to God who are obedient to him, who love him, who cherish him. Paul sees this as a priestly role. But at the same time, he recognizes it's not him. You know, Paul's not boasting, even as we sang in the song, he will not boast in any gifts or talents, riches, he will boast only in Christ Jesus. He sees himself as partaking in God's mission. Not that it's his mission apart from God, he's just a partaker. And so, he's sharing in as an instrument. And so I see, I, I see two things in this passage that we can learn about what it means to share in God's mission. Well, first, it means that we give glory to God for gospel fruit. So you see this, I mean, in every verse after this as Paul describes. Look in verse 16. The offering he's, he's providing to God, the Gentiles, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Verse 17, I have a reason to boast. It's in Christ Jesus. Verse 18, I'm not going to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. Not me, what Christ has accomplished through me. I'm not the guy. Jesus is the guy. Verse 18, sorry, verse 19. Yeah, verse 18 into 19. He said, I'm going around preaching. I'm, I'm working hard for Jesus. You know, these signs and these miracles are accompanying me, but it's all the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm not doing anything. It's, it's God. If you go back to Acts 21, I said it's kind of where the, you can almost pinpoint Paul's desire to write the, the, this letter to the Roman church. And so, if you go back there and you move back just 10 verses. So right at the same time, Paul's having this desire we get a glimpse of what his ministry looks like. And this is what Luke records in Acts 19, 11. He says, And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hand of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that simply touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. <laughs> That's some pretty powerful signs and wonders. Just a, a handkerchief touching his skin, being carried away, and someone with a disease being healed. That is a powerful sign. That's a symptom of the gospel going where it's never gone before to, to validate the word and the work that Paul's doing. He says, there's amazing stuff happening everywhere I go. I'm just telling people about Jesus. I'm trying my hardest. These amazing things are happening, but it's not me. I have nothing to do with it. I'm simply an instrument in God's hands. In Christ, I will boast. It's the Spirit who's sanctifying this, these people. All of this is happening by the power of the Spirit. Sharing in God's mission means giving glory to God for all of the fruit. And then secondly, sharing in God's mission means we work hard to fulfill what God has asked us to do. You see, when God, when we know that God is sovereign, and then we also know that God is committed to his glory, we know that what he wants to happen is going to happen. 
Paul can look at God's commitment to his own glory and his commitment to his own mission and say, I have confidence in this. So I'm going to work as hard as I can to take this gospel to all nations, to all people. He said, I'm not going to slouch because Christ didn't slouch on me. So I'm going to work hard. Look at verse 19. He says, all of this is happening by the power of the Spirit. He says, so that from Jerusalem all the way to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the gospel, the ministry of the gospel of Christ. He literally says there, I have filled up the gospel. I have filled up the gospel. <laughs> Just consider this for a moment. I know, I know we live in Ohio right now, and this is on the other side of the world. We don't have a lot of concept of geography. This is a 1,200-mile difference between Jerusalem to Illyricum. This is like saying, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel from here to Mexico. Paul has covered a lot of ground for the third time. And he says, I have filled up the gospel. I have filled the gospel, completed it. I've done the work, and there's nothing left for me to do. He says that down in verse 22. There's no room left for me to work. Now you say, how on earth, Paul, can you say that? Now, T.L. mentioned this last week. That does not mean that he has personally evangelized every single person in that region. He has not personally invited every single person he's met to trust in Christ. But what that does mean is that every single place that he's gone, he's preached the gospel. Every single place he's gone, he's gathered those who responded and planted churches. Every place that he's gone, he's trained them. He's discipled them. He's trained up leaders and left them to the task to carry on the work. You see this even in, the, uh, in Corinthians. He says, I planted, Apollos watered. I have my role, I left Apollos to continue. He writes uh, to Timothy. He, you know, Paul planted the church in Ephesus, and he says, Timothy, you do the work of an evangelist. You carry on the work. Paul is working hard. He knows what his goal is. He, you know, we see in this passage that he says, I want to preach the word everywhere that Christ is not already named. I want to go where no one else is going. I want to go where nobody knows who Jesus is. It's the first time they've ever heard of him. And I'm going to train up others so that they can carry on and keep making him known where I've been, where I've planted churches. See, Paul, he's gone 1,200 miles. He's planted a lot of churches, and he's done. He has worked so hard. And that's actually when we see in verse 22, he says, hey, church in Rome, I have really longed to come to you. This is the reason I've so often been hindered from coming to you. I've been busy. I've been working really hard. And I've been working hard because Christ worked so hard for me. Because Christ died on that cross for me. Because Christ suffered for me. I'm going to give it my all because God gave it his all for me. He can say, I have fulfilled the gospel everywhere I've gone. And in fact, Paul you know, saw his, his own ministry. He, you see here uh, Isaiah 52 being referenced. Paul sees his own ministry, his own calling, sees this task that Christ has asked him to do as the fulfillment of Isaiah 52. He's, you know, he quotes uh, Isaiah 52 and says, this is what I'm doing. Those who have never been told of him will see. Those who have never heard will understand. I'm going to preach Christ where he's not already been named. Now, if you're familiar with that, that's the prologue to the famous suffering servant passage. Isaiah 53 is what we 
often think of when we think of Isaiah. This one who bore our sins, who was pierced for our transgressions. You know, the one on whom the Lord has laid all of our iniquity, all of our sin, all of our transgression. Paul says, I have been called to take that suffering servant to people who need it. I have been called to make the one who bore the iniquity of the world to people who need to hear this message. And so, Paul does that. He works hard. He trusts God is going to fulfill his mission, so he joins in, and he works really hard. And you know what the fruit of this is? A lot of gospel fruit. Acts 19.10 says that all the residents of Asia, that, that is modern-day Turkey, heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. That doesn't mean Paul evangelized everyone. That means that the work that he started there continued. And all the inhabitants, all the residents of Asia, of Turkey, heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. There's plenty more to be done, of course. That's why there's churches there. There's more evangelism to do. Not everyone has trusted in Christ. But he's been faithful to his specific call, and he has worked hard. And he can say, I have no room left in this region to do anymore. I'm done. And so... As he's continuing his third missionary journey, checking on these churches, he's realizing, I think I'm done here. Where else can I go? And so he sets his sights even further. You see, Illyricum is not the western end of the world. There's more land to go. There's more people. There's other places I can go. And so he sets his sight on Spain, which at that time was the end of the known world. Paul was literally taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. He sets his sights on Spain. Now, Paul was called to be a minister to the Gentiles. We saw this in Acts 26, his calling from Jesus. He was called to be a frontier missionary um, on the very edge of gospel missions. And this was a unique calling. But here, even 2,000 years later, this matters to us. We too have a part in this mission. The same mission that Paul was seeking to fulfill and be a part of is the same mission that you and I are called to be a part of. We all know Matthew 28. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Well, that includes right here. And you know who Christ is. 2,000 years later, we all have a calling. We all have a part and a share in this mission. And it's to make much of Jesus where we are. And we do the same two things that Paul did. We give glory to God for the fruit that we see in our lives. We give all of the praise to God for what we see going on here. When you have a good MC, when you have a good Bible study, when you have a wonderful one-on-one with someone that you're discipling and you just see the gospel working in them, you praise God for that. When you see your children responding to the gospel, when you see people opening up and being receptive to Jesus, you praise God for that. When you see people living lives of greater obedience, greater joy in the Lord, you give glory to God for that. We give glory to God for the fruit in our lives and for the privilege of sharing in his mission. And we also work hard. Being a Christian is really difficult. Being a Christian requires hard work. Sharing in God's mission requires action. Being in on this gospel, being filled by the gospel requires us to fulfill the gospel. You know, some of you sit here wondering what your call is going to be, what God is calling you to do with your life, what your purpose is with the rest of your days. I'm here to tell you that wherever God calls you, you have the same calling to make much of Jesus. Whether that's here, whether that's in Indiana, whether you move to Texas, whether you move to a different continent, wherever you are, you have a mission, and it's to make much 
of Jesus. Make it your ambition then. Make it your absolute passion to just love Jesus, to be so about him that everyone looks at you and says, I want that. I want so much of what they have in the gospel. Make it your ambition to make much of Jesus. Do not let those near to you go to hell saying, I never heard. I never knew. Don't let God be robbed of glory because the gospel that came to you stopped at you. Make it your ambition to make much of Jesus. We often say, who is near to you but far from God? Make it your ambition that no one near to you will ever say, I never heard. I never understood. Make it your aim that Acts 19.10 can be said about Cincinnati, can be said about Pleasant Ridge, about Deer Park, that all the residents, all the inhabitants heard the word. Make it your goal that that can be said about Oakley and about Wyoming and about College Hill and about Anderson, about University of Cincinnati. That can be said about everywhere around here, about Covington, about Madisonville, about Silverton, where we're about to move to. Make it your goal that Acts 19.10 can be said of the place where you are. All the inhabitants heard the word. Now, some of you are going to move away. Many of you probably are, already have that in your mind, that I'm only here for a few years. I'm going to be moving after I'm done with school, after I'm done with residency. You know, I'm going to be looking for a job here at some point. Wherever you go, make it your ambition to make much of Jesus. At the same time, I do also think that some of you in this room are called in more unique ways. Some of you are wrestling right now, is God calling me to missions? Is God calling me to pastor somewhere? Is God calling me to lead an organization that shows the glory of God by helping those who need the most help? Some of you are going to be called as missionaries. Some of you are going to be called to plant churches. Some of you are going to be called to pastor. If that's on your heart right now, lean into it. That's a good desire. The ordinary call of every Christian is to make much of Jesus, but some of you are going to be called in unique ways. And I pray that the Lord give you the grace to fulfill that calling, giving all the glory to God and working really hard to make much of Jesus. Now, I also know, I also know that some of you are maybe quite scared about sharing the gospel with people when you say, I don't think I know enough. What if they ask me a question? I'm really scared. Well, I just want to encourage you. Another thing that we often say around here, if you know enough to, to be saved, you, eno you know enough to share it. If you know enough about Jesus that you can say he's my savior, then you automatically know enough to tell someone else about him. You see, the Samaritan woman is a really good case example here. She really didn't, I guarantee you, you know much more about Jesus than she did. But she was a fantastic evangelist. She was wonderful at sharing the gospel. In fact, a whole town came out to see Jesus because of her. And all she did was say, come see a man that told me everything I've, I've ever done. Come see the man that knows me. That's all she said. She didn't know everything there was about Jesus. You definitely know more about Jesus. Make it your ambition to make much of Jesus. Now, sharing in God's mission uh, involves much more than just being you know, focused on our own lane in life, much more than being focused on our own corner of the world. It involves caring about God's mission in other places of the world. And if you're plowing a field on one side, you care you know, about how someone else's life is going, how someone else's field is growing. Though we may be in different places, though 
you may move away. Though you may not see someone who's on the other side of the world, though we may be in different places, we should not ignore God's mission in other places. It's not less than that, but it's definitely much more than just focusing on our corner. We need to be caring about what God is doing in other places. And so, sharing in God's mission, fulfilling the gospel, involves supporting God's mission and praying for God's mission. Those are going to be our final two points. So we're going to start with, how do we fulfill the gospel? By passionately supporting God's mission. So we're going to look at verses 22 through 29 here. Now, early in this letter, Paul tells the Roman church that he has a really strong desire to come and see them. In fact, he's had this desire for years, he says in chapter 1. But, as we've seen, he's been busy. The demands have been heavy. He's been working really hard. You can read through the New Testament and see everything that's been going on. He has been one busy guy. He's been busy preaching. He's been busy planting churches. But now the work is done. He's fulfilled the gospel in the areas that he's been, and now he's turning his attention towards Rome and beyond. Now he wants, in chapter 1, he said he wants to be mutually encouraged. I hope to come to you that we may share some mutual encouragement. But, like I said in the beginning, Paul's been holding some cards pretty close to his chest. He hasn't exactly shared everything yet. And here in 15, he kind of, you know, puts it all out there. So we're still talking about why Paul wrote this whole big letter. He wrote them to remind them of the gospel, to encourage them to share in God's mission, and then here, because he wants their support and their prayer. He says in verse 22, you know, I've really been, uh, had a difficult time coming to you, but now since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for so many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain to be helped on my journey there by you and to enjoy your company for a while. Paul wants the church at Rome to be a stepping stone. That's not his end goal. Rome is not where he wants to go to finish his race. That's a stepping stone. Paul's still breathing. People are still dying without Christ. Paul says, I'm going to Spain, and I want to use you as my you know, jump point to get there. Now, he's fulfilled the gospel. It's time to move on. And so Paul is planning ahead in his ministry. He's, he's satisfied with what's been going on and where he's been. And he's not satisfied with what's going on in Spain. He wants to go there. He recognizes that this church in Rome has a huge part to play. This church in Rome is a healthy church. A lot of resources, wonderful Christians that can encourage him and support him. And so he's written all these first 14 chapters. He said, this is what I'm doing in my ministry. Do you want to be a part of this? You see, Romans is really a first century example of a virtual missionary support meeting. You know, many of you have been on either end of a support meeting at some point for someone who's trying to raise support for themselves, um, whether it's for, you know, Young Life Ministry or even we have people here who work at the church and support raised for themselves. Many of you have been on either side of this. Um, I know I've sat in many support meetings, and they usually go something like this. Hey, I'm so glad that we could meet today. It's just such a joy that we could be here. I want to tell you about this opportunity I have. Here's the work that I'm planning to do. Here's what we're going to be doing. I'm really excited about it. We've really thought through it. Here's why I want to do this. I'm so passionate about this. I'm so excited about this. I want to be involved in this. So this is the work I'm going to be doing. And this is how I'm going to do it. I'm going to be doing you know, X, Y, Z, and this is how I'm going to fulfill this call. Now, if you like this, if you think this is a good thing, 
and you want to be a part of this, this is how you can get involved. Give and pray. That is how almost every support meeting goes. And that is exactly what Paul is doing here. The first 14 chapters, he's talking about what he's doing, what he believes, showing what is the fuel to his mission, what his hopes are. And now, he gets the point. You church, this church in Rome, you guys want to get involved in this? Here's how you can do it, to give and to pray. Support me and pray for me. He, he wants help on his journey there, and he wants to be encouraged by them for a while. Um, so, just for context here, I've already told you that from Jerusalem to Illyricum is about 1,200 miles. Well, Paul is probably writing this letter uh, to the Romans in Corinth, which is uh, 600 miles away from Rome. And then he has his sights set on Spain, which is um, about another 600 miles past that. And so this is not, you know, modern day we think 1,200 miles, ooh, that's a, that's a long trip. That's a couple hours on a plane. Oof, that is a long drive. That's a couple days' drive. In Paul's day, this is by foot and by boat. This is a long, long trip. This could be months. This is a perilous journey. There is a ton of opportunity for danger on this trip. He's going to need support. He's going to need encouragement. He's going to need help. He's going to need people to be there for him. He's going to need lodging, resources, supplies. He's going to need people to pray for him, to speak into his life, to encourage him, to send him out. That's what he wants from this church in Rome. He expresses his hope that they could be his sending church. You know, Paul is leaving on his third missionary journey from Antioch. He's asking Rome to be his new Antioch, basically. Now, Paul has every right to ask this of them. Uh, but he saved this to the end because he wants them to want this mission too. You see, he could have led with, hey guys, I need, I need some resources, I need some prayer, please send these. As an apostle of Christ, he had every right to do that. But he saved all of this to the end because these first 14 chapters, he wants them to get excited about it too. In the same way that in a support meeting, you're never trying to you know, twist someone just to get money or prayer out of them. You want them to be as passionate about the mission as you are. And so that's what Paul is doing here. Wow, everything keeps falling off of this. Um, he wants them to be as passionate about the mission as he is and gladly, joyfully participate in what he's doing. He says, become my sending church, and I'm going to take this gospel to Spain. Become the ones who send me out, and this is what you're sending to Spain. The gospel which is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. So that's what he says. He, he breaks the news. I want you to be my new Antioch. And then this really interesting thing comes next. <laughs> Look next. He says in verse 25, At present, though, I'm going to Jerusalem, bringing aid, uh, yeah, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. This is really interesting. So Paul's in Corinth. It's about 600 miles away from Rome. Jerusalem, said, is about 1,000 miles in the wrong direction. That is like right here, right now, me saying, hey, friend up in Milwaukee, I want to come see you, but first I need to take a pit stop in Miami by foot. This is a long detour. This is a huge detour. And now Paul's also already said, hey, my desire is to preach the gospel where he has not been named, where Jesus is not known. That's Paul's fire. That's his drive. Deliver a donation. 
on a 2,000-mile out-of-the-way round-trip detour? <laughs> this, this begs some questions. Why does this matter? Why does Paul need to be the guy to deliver it? Why can't he just send Timothy or someone else that you know, is, is working with him? Why does he need to be the one to deliver this? And why does this matter? Why does he put it in the letter to the Romans? Why does it matter to the Romans? These are the questions that stuff like this should pop out at us. We might be tempted as, as we're reading to just place a question mark on that and keep on going. This matters to Paul. It should matter to us because as we're going to see, it matters to the gospel. So logistically, this is, this is just a kind gesture. It's good for the Romans to know when to expect him. But on a much deeper level, this is a gospel matter. See, it's a gospel matter of witnessing to the world. Jesus told the disciples that the world will know that you are my disciples by how you love one another. And so, this is a gospel matter. He wants one part of the church to show how much they love another part of the church. I mean, imagine, just, just consider this for a moment. You hear of a great need of your brothers and sisters in Christ, and you say, you guys take care of it yourself. We're fine over here. We're not going to send any help to you. What kind of love is that? What kind of gospel unity does that show? What kind of gospel love does that portray? You want the world to look in on the gospel and see, oh, how they love one another. You want to see this amazing gospel-fired love that spans even a thousand miles. The only thing that connects that is the gospel. So it's a matter of gospel witness to the world. A body knit together in love that so strongly shows the power of the Spirit to change lives and change hearts. It's also a matter of gospel uh, priority in the lives of believers. So this is not the only place in the Bible that Paul talks about this collection. It's actually a big topic. It comes up a little bit in Acts. It comes up in his letter to the First Corinthians because they are a church in Achaia. And he writes two chapters on it in Second Corinthians. And in Second Corinthians chapter 9, he says, this is the point of this collection. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. And then a few verses later, he says, for the ministry of the service, this collection that he's doing, is not only for the supplying the needs of the saints, but it's also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. See, Paul wants these Christians in Achaia and Macedonia to see the value of putting the gospel first, to love the mission more than money, to love what's going on in God's mission in another part of the world more than in their own little neighborhood too. He wants believers in Macedonia and Achaia to care about what God's doing elsewhere, care about his people, care about his mission. So it's a matter of gospel priority, that they are overflowing in thanksgiving for what they've received from God. And then it's a matter of gospel unity. And this is huge. This is foundational to Paul's, what Paul's thinking about right now. The same passage, 2 Corinthians 9, he says, by their approval of this service, that is, by Jerusalem's acceptance of this offering that I am collecting, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from the confession of the gospel and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. He says, this is going to unite two groups that have really had friction. This is going to bring together a people so that there's no longer just Gentile believers and Jewish believers. There's now just believer, all under the banner of the gospel in Christ. This is going to bring 
all of them together so that the Jewish, the Jewish Christians can see the Gentile Christians are of the same substance. They're the same. We've, we're following the same Jesus. No longer two different groups rubbing together. This is going to unite them and show gospel unity like never before. This is a matter of gospel unity for God's mission. So this collection is a matter of gospel witness, gospel priority, and gospel unity. And this is not unassociated to what he's trying to stir up the Romans to do at the same time. He even says so much that the, the Gentiles have a debt to fulfill to the Jewish Christians. Um, to f- um, they've received so much spiritual blessing that they ought to. It is their debt to, f- to supply material needs in response to the extreme gift they've received. And he wants the believers in Rome to feel the same way. He wants them to care about God's mission elsewhere. In Spain, about responding to the extreme grace they've been shown, that amazing grace that God loved them even while they were still in sin. He wants them to be stirred up and to support the mission of God elsewhere. He wants the Roman Christians to feel a debt to the unbelievers in Spain, to those who have never heard the gospel. You see, if you have the gospel, you're indebted to those who have not heard it. You have a responsibility, but a joyful, passionate responsibility to share that gospel with people who have never heard it. He's stirring up the the Roman Christians to love the mission of God where they are not presently. So they fulfill the gospel by supporting God's mission. They fill up the gospel by supporting God's mission out of joyful passion for Jesus. Now, by way of illustration, when I was in primary school, at Christmas time, so getting close to it about, you know, right now, about this time of year, they would set up a room on the side, and they would put up five big tables. And on those tables, they would put one, two, three, four, and five dollars. It was a little uh, Christmas gift place that we could go as students and buy Christmas gifts for our family, between one and five dollars. You know, it was pretty much all junk, but it was junk that I could afford as a seven-year-old. And so, one day in class, we would all go down there together, and we would uh, spend some money and get some gifts for our families. And the night before that would happen, I would sit down with my mom, and I would budget out my money. And you know, I would, I would literally write down everyone I would see at Christmas time that I knew I would see, and I would assign a, a dollar value to them. I would, <laughs> I would say, I think this cousin's worth one dollar. <laughs> Aunts and uncles, I will combine them for a dollar. Um, my sister might get three. Um, and so I would go down and assign dollar values to everybody. But for my mom and for my dad, I would always put a five beside each of them. I wouldn't combine them. I would put a five beside mom, and I would put a five beside dad. Now, why would I do that? Well, I did it because I loved them. I did it because I cared so much about them. I thought they were worth it. And so, natural question here, do you love Jesus? Do you care about him? Do you see him as worth the $5 or the $1? Do you cherish this gospel that you have received? Do you cherish it so much that you're willing to get rid of everything else for the surpassing worth of this? You see, Jesus likened the gospel, the kingdom of God, to a treasure that a man found in a field. And in his exuberant excitement, he covers it up. And then he runs away and sells everything else that he owns so he can buy that field because it's worth it. What are you not willing to give up for this gospel mission? 
What are you will, not willing to give up for the advance of the gospel? Is there anything you would cling to more than seeing God's mission go out into the world to save the nations and bring them to glory in God? Is there anything you wouldn't give up? Not just a generic and like impersonal places, but what would, what would you do to see the gospel go into real lives that are impacted by drug addiction and depression and loneliness and, and isolation and all of these things? What would you do if you knew you could see God's gospel go into these places and make real changes, real restoration through the gospel? What are you willing to give up to see God's mission advance? We often say at the Oaks that you have time you have treasures, and you have talents. How can you use those three to bring restoration to Cincinnati through the gospel and to the world? Now, not every saint is equally blessed with time, or sorry, with uh, treasures and talents. You know, some of us are, we all have different gifts. We, some of us make more money than others. Some of us have better talents than others. But one thing that we all have the exact same amount of is time. You all have 168 hours in the week, as Jimmy likes to say. We all have the same amount of time. And so there's one thing that all of us can do, regardless of your treasures, regardless of your talents, and that's pray. That brings us to our fourth point. How can you fulfill the gospel? If you're paralyzed, you can do this. If you're in hospice care, you can do this. If you have nothing else going for you in life, if you are destitute broke, you can do this. You can fulfill the gospel by passionately praying for God's mission. And we see this in verses 30 through 33. Paul says, brothers, I appeal to you by our Lord Jesus and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf that I may be delivered from unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, and so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. This is not your just generic hallmark prayer request. This isn't just, I'll oh, pray for a good week. You know, Paul has some serious and weighty things that he wants them to pray for. Notice first how he asks them. He says, brothers, I appeal to you. I beg you, struggle with me. Pray with me. He literally says, join in me in my struggle. Accompany me in the midst of the trenches. Struggle with me on my behalf to God. Pray with me. Are you praying for God's mission? The Romans could do this. You can do this too. Pray for God's mission. Are you struggling alongside those who are struggling for the gospel? Pray for them. See, one of the most humbling questions I think I've ever been asked, and it continues to just convict me to the core, is... If God answered every single prayer from just the last week exactly as you asked it, would anything have happened? If God answered every prayer that you've written, prayed, or thought in the last week exactly as you asked it, would anything have changed? Would anyone be closer to Christ and farther from sin? Would anyone be walking in greater obedience than they did before? Would the West family in London be experiencing God's mercy in new and amazing ways? Would the Lovets be seeing God's do, uh, God do amazing things in Spain, even where Paul's trying to go? Would anything have changed if God answered every prayer you prayed this last week? Would the church be more unified? Would the Father, the Son, and the Spirit be more glorified? Would anything have changed? Pray for God's mission to advance. Pray 
that the gospel would be cherished among the nations. Now notice what Paul asks for prayer here. He he asks for three things. Very specific. He says, pray that I might be delivered from non-believers in Judea. Pray that my service, this collection I've I've been gathering, would be acceptable to the saints in Jerusalem. And that I would be able to make it to you and be refreshed in your company. And maybe you didn't know this, but the book of Acts is a wonderful story of God's work in the early church. It's also a record of many answered prayer requests. See, all three of these prayer requests are answered, but not exactly as Paul maybe expected it. See, Paul was probably looking forward to just going to Jerusalem, having a wonderful time with the saints there, dropping off this collection, and working his way back to Rome. You know, a nice trip. Um, But that's not exactly how it happened. God would answer all three of these prayer requests, but not quite how Paul perhaps intended it. This is a powerful lesson for us even as we pray. Careful about what you pray for, because God will answer it in the best way. If you're his child, he will answer your prayers, but it may not be in the way that you think is best. God will answer your prayer. Just be prepared for how he answers it, because he knows what's best for you. And so, We can see in the book of Acts all three of these prayer requests be answered. He indeed makes it to Jerusalem. We see this in Acts 21. He makes it there and he likely delivers this gift. We see in Acts 21, 19 that he relays everything that's been done among the Gentiles to um, Peter and to James and to John. And when he does, it says the Jerusalem church glorifies God. Mission success. Unity preserved. Priority advanced. Love displayed. The church in Jerusalem glorified God for what the Gentiles were doing. Prayer, prayer answered. Next, he prayed for deliverance from, from the unbelievers in Judea. Well, Paul didn't quite make an easy exit. He goes to the temple one day, and he's recognized by some Jews who had been in the areas he'd been ministering in. They recognized him and created quite a scene. And in all of this unrest, Paul is arrested. He's arrested. And surrounded by armed guards and taken in chains, he becomes a prisoner. And in the midst of all this, there's a plot out to kill him. He has many Jewish men essentially set a price on his head. They all commit together that they're going to kill Paul or die themselves. And you know what? Paul survives, but in chains. He survives as a prisoner. Prayer answered. He's delivered from the unbelievers, but not how he expected it. And now the whole back third of the book of Acts basically talks about his journey from that point on. What happens next? Well, we see, I mean, this is better than almost any adventure book you will find written today. And this really happened. Paul goes before ruler after ruler, leader after leader, official after official. He gets passed around. He gets forgotten in prison for two years. He gets passed around. He talks about what he's seen. He, he tries to vindicate himself, and he remains a prisoner. And then he gets put on a ship, and that ship sinks. He floats around at sea for a couple days. He washes up on an island. He gets bit by a snake, and then he keeps on, they keep on going. And you know where he winds up? In Rome, the very thing he had asked for. But he arrived as a prisoner. See, Paul didn't expect this. But his prayer was answered. In in the first chapter of Romans, he prayed, Oh, I would love to come to you who are in Rome and preach the gospel there and be mutually encouraged. And then here he asked for prayer that he would come and be refreshed. Well, he arrived as a prisoner, but I think this prayer was answered. 
You see, the book of Acts ends with Paul in Rome under house arrest, but most definitely with joy and refreshment. See, the final two verses of Acts say that he lived there for two whole years and welcomed all who came to him, and he proclaimed the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. He got to do what he wanted to do. He got to come and preach the gospel and be refreshed by the saints there for two whole years as a prisoner. His prayer was answered, and it was the best thing for the church that it was answered in the way that it was. The church flourished. See, this is the power of prayer and of supporting God's mission, of cherishing the gospel. Oh, won't you pray? Won't you pray that this happens, that people would hear the gospel and it would go to places it's never been heard before? Now, one man who is uh, remembered in history for his life of prayer is Hudson Taylor. He, uh, in 1858, he was a relatively unknown medical missionary from England, just 26 years old. Some of you are about now. Just 26 years old serving in Ningbo, China, south of Shanghai. And he set up a medical dispensary where he could tend to the needs of people suffering from the ongoing opium crisis that plagued that country. And while he did this, he preached the gospel. One such man who heard him was named Ni, and Ni was a Buddhist. But after hearing Hudson Taylor preach one day, he said, I have been looking for the truth and I found it here. I will follow Christ. Now sometime later, Ni and Hudson Taylor were talking, and Ni asked him a question. He said, Hudson, how long has the gospel been known in England? And Hudson Taylor had to respond, well, for a few hundred years, actually. And Ni said, what? You're telling me you've known this for hundreds of years and you're just now coming? He said, my father sought the truth for more than 20 years and died without finding it. Why didn't you come sooner? Oh, doesn't that just weigh on you? Why didn't they come sooner? Why don't we go sooner? What will you do to make sure that no one else says, I never heard it was never told to me. What will you do? Now, Hudson Taylor did something. See, a few years later, he would start an organization known as China, China Inland Missions. And by the time he died, 50 years later, that society would be responsible for starting 125 schools, for sending and mobilizing 800 missionaries, directly resulting in over 18,000 conversions among the Chinese, the establishment of more than 300 outreach stations with 500 local helpers in all 18 provinces of China, unknown before him. And even after those missionaries were expelled in the 20th century, the church continued to thrive. And even today, the church can look back at, its, at the legacy of Hudson Taylor, a man of prayer. But you know, that's an amazing story. We love that. And we think, oh, that's Hudson Taylor. I could never be that. Listen to how Hudson Taylor described himself. He said, I myself, for instance, I'm not especially gifted. I am shy by nature. There's not much to me. But my gracious and merciful God and Father inclined himself to me. And when I was weak in faith, he strengthened me. And when I was still young, he taught me in my helplessness to rest in him and even to pray about the things which others might have felt able to help themselves in. Hudson Taylor was just like you and I, not much, 
needy people, but those who have been filled by the gospel. And so he went and fulfilled the gospel with all matter of prayer, with all matter of earnestness, with all matter of trust in Christ. And so, to you, this is the challenge. Those who have been filled by the gospel, go fulfill the gospel wherever you are. Fulfill the gospel here, the next town over, the ends of the earth. And how do you do that? By cherishing the gospel, by sharing in God's mission, by supporting his mission, and by praying for his mission. So let's go ahead and pray now.